Welcome to Conscious Curiosity San Diego, the podcast that provides the backstory of local successful San Diego leaders who bring hope, inspiration, and purpose to the work they do and the people they lead. Conscious Curiosity is sponsored by Conscious Capitalism San Diego, and I'm your host, Jeff Blanton from Jailbreak Leadership. Conscious Capitalism calls for a different type of leadership, a leader that seeks a higher purpose for business beyond profit that positively impacts all the stakeholders, employees, vendors, and the community they work in. We will explore why they have come to lead in this way, the rewards and challenges of being a conscious leader, and their vision for the future for their businesses and the community of San Diego. Student loan debt in America. Did you know one out of four Americans is faced with student loan debt? Yes, one out of four. Nationally, this totals up to over $1.7 trillion in debt, averaging around $37,000 per individual. It usually takes around 10 years to pay it off, and that's assuming it gets paid off. Student loans have a higher default rate than credit cards, auto loans, and mortgages. Obviously, this is a really big problem in our country. This is why I am very excited to have our guest, Ken Ruggiero, who is our, he was the CEO and chairman of Asset Funding on Conscious Curiosity SD Podcast today. Ken, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Ken, who serves on the advisory committee for Conscious Capitalism San Diego, is on a mission with his company, Asset Funding, to provide access to education for millions of underserved students every year. They believe education is an investment in the student's future, and they want to empower students of all economic backgrounds and disciplines to maximize the return on that investment. So before we jump into what this whole world of student loan debt and all this looks like, Ken, what's the story? How the heck did you get in this? What's the backstory of Ken? Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's a it's a path that I've been on uh, without any real destination in sight, just a constant pursuit of interesting things to work on. And and for the last eighteen years, I've been working in and around the education finance industry. I said education finance, not student loans. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, that. A little definition, a little refining here. Yeah, yeah, a little refining because uh, there is a, there is a difference the way we approach the market and. Uh, from a personal journey perspective, uh, I was one of three sons uh, of second-generation Italian parents in New Jersey who didn't go to college. So I was told at a very young age uh, uh, two things. One, you're all going to college, and two, you're all going to pay for it yourself. And, uh, and my dad owned an ice cream store, so I grew up working in his ice cream store thinking that as a low-middle-income family, that was normal. Uh, that's what all my friends did pizza stores or barber shops and whatnot. So I uh, saved a bunch of money and uh, I went to UMass and paid my way through, worked my way and paid my way through. And I graduated with $500 of student loan debt. A little smaller number than what I was quoting yes, earlier. A little smaller number. UMass uh, was, wasn't cheap at the time because I was an out-of-state student, but it had a good accounting program. So uh, so, so there's a couple of things in there that haven't really changed in the education finance space since I went in the 80s. And uh, one, my father wouldn't fill out a form called the FAFSA form. So there's a free application for federal aid that uh, low and, and low income and low middle income families can get Pell Grants and federal student loans at very, very accommodating rates. Uh, my dad ran a cash business, so he wasn't too interested in doing two things. One, showing his three sons what his income was, because that's what happens when you fill out this form. And then two, probably more importantly, showing the federal government. 
Uh, so, so it was more complicated. And, and as I, as I reflected on that about six years ago, when we, when we started the ascent business, I was like, well, what's changed? And, uh, and, you know, for first generation learners, for especially people, whether they're doc or international students or English as a second language, they, they have the same kind of fears my dad did. So even though there are amazing federal programs to support, uh, first time learners, uh, even though the state of California has some great learn learnings and, and capital they can share people don't even apply for it and and it's usually either one they don't know about it because even though there's data everywhere it's also kind of nowhere if you don't know where to look for it uh, and then if they do know where to look for it, they've got parents who are counseling against filling out forms so so that hasn't changed but the access to good information about how to choose an academic path uh, and improve your economic standing that has changed dramatically and then the second thing that's happened is is the price has gone way up so uh, in the 80s, you could go to college, uh, you go to your state college, go to a private college, and you could, quote, find yourself, right? Like, I don't know if I want to do accounting or economics or maybe English or astronomy, right? Like, in a low-cost manner, you could go search and find yourself as an 18-year-old. Well, that in, in the state of California, that search and find mission, if you go to a UC school for an in-state student, is about $36,000 a year. So if you're in the middle, if you're middle class and you've got two kids going to school, you better sock away two hundred fifty thousand or more uh, of after-tax income if you're if you plan on putting your two smart kids through a state school. That is some serious dollars and cents right there. Right? Yeah, yeah, and and, and that and we're going to get into untangling what what is the problem with the higher education uh, industry, and it's an industry. Don't don't fool yourself just because they're academics that it's not an industry. And we're going to talk about I think ways that we're being part of the solution and some of the tenets of conscious capitalism are ways that uh, that we've been deploying to be really part of the solution in, in what we see as an inefficient market and, uh, and, an, and a somewhat unfair market. So one of the things uh, you spoke to when we were talking over the phone back a couple of weeks ago was the value of education in today's society. And maybe, maybe share a little bit about that because that, that kind of struck me. I mean, it's important to get educated. I mean, just yeah. a high school degree is not going really to cut it for you anymore. The, the pandemic has really exposed inside of pathways into higher education. The, the first one is the traditional path, that 18-year-old who goes right into a bachelor's program. Uh, th that that model is now, one, it's, it's being challenged from a cost and a return perspective, and uh, and it's it's being challenged from a, an efficacy perspective. So, so whether or not you're learning online or in a classroom, uh, the 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 industry and the and the students and the families are now going. Is this the best use of my time and my money? And uh, and 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 I'm excited about that because four-year programs for an 18-year-old are not for everybody. And there, there shouldn't be any social stigma with that. There shouldn't be any, uh, you know, oh, your kid didn't get into. Uh, you know, the, there's there's phenomenal programs that that accommodate the skills and uh, and 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 competencies of all forms of students, whether they're whether they're just graduated or whether they came back from the military or whether they're you know they started and stopped or they're in a community college transitioning. And, and those pathways, what we call alternate pathways, should maybe be the primary pathways for a, a large number of, of the student-going population. And when you arc that to why do we have a debt problem, well, you have a cost problem, right? The, the, the debt problem, it's not like the federal government you know, likes waiting 10 years to collect on $1.7 trillion, because that's kind of what they're doing. Uh, the, the, it's the schools who want the $1.7 trillion, right? 
So each year in this country, there you have it, right? Yeah, they get it. Like it, it becomes, it becomes they, they're the ones with the money. Yeah, yeah, they got the money. They paid their rent. They paid their their staff, and uh, and they're a little they're, profit in there too. Maybe they, they well, schools are not well run businesses, but um, but but no. So each year, five hundred billion dollars gets spent on education in the country. Five hundred billion dollars. So. That number about 15 years ago used to be 300 billion. So, so then the the cost of education and and that and and the state support has gone down. So, what does a school do that has to do zero budgeting when their costs are going up and their state and federal support is going down? There's only one pressure release, and that's the tuition. So, so that's what they've been doing. They've been doing the only thing they could do. Now, the, the tuition has been rising at a rate faster than inflation and faster than starting salaries. So, so talk about a broken system where, where the cost is untethered to the return and the outcome. It's, it's, it's just math. And, and, uh, and the federal government and the families are bearing the brunt of this dislocation between value and cost. I love. I can see this disturbs you a lot. <laughs> this is what it's all about, right? We're trying yeah. to solve a problem, and that's where build a business to go make that happen. Yeah. Can you can you speak a little bit? Like earlier, you said it was kind of even unethical, or you know, the fact that people just go in for this four year college. Can you can you expand upon that a little bit? Just like, so I'm a parent, and I got a kid that's maybe 15, and you know, I, I see that's what people are doing. But that, that's kind of an interesting comment. Why, why did you say that? Yeah. How does that, that play out? I guess. Yeah. There, there's there's um. I'll give you a couple of examples of how it plays out. So, uh, so you're, um, you know, I'm the dad of two sons and they're two very, very different paths. One was very finance oriented. One was very healthcare oriented. So same parents, same community, uh, two very different children. And, uh, and they required two very different pathways into education. And, uh, and, and they both had success. I'm very fortunate. They both had successful, they both graduated in the last two years, but uh, but but we were very attentive parents trying to figure out uh, the math. So so here's here's the math that faces California students who want to be a nurse. So uh, so if you apply to be a nurse, uh, you go uh, go to a state school, San Diego State, Long Beach State. Is that a four year program? Four year program. You graduate in four years with a uh, a BSN, a Bachelor's of Science in Nursing. So uh, that program at the UC or at the SDSU systems costs about thirty two thousand dollars a year for in state students tuition room and board. So that's about $100,000 uh, that you have to commit to, to get a, a degree that allows you to sit for the, the nursing exam that allows you to become a, a, a registered nurse in California. So, so that's a very specific pathway. We can go onto the internet and find out the very specific starting salary. Well, here's the way it works in California. Uh, you apply into the state school for the nursing program, and and they admit more than the 120 that they have clinical spaces for. So you start out as a as a uh, basically a science major, and you go through your first two years. Uh, if if there's only 120 slots for clinicals when you're a junior, and you're ranked number 121, you graduate a biology major. Oh, okay. okay so, so, so isn't some natural attrition they're planning for where they say, well, we just know based yeah. on history, we, this many come in, this many come out. Right. Actually, there's not enough seats at the end of the day. Exactly. Wow. And, and the seats are controlled by the, the nursing board. So, so there's a lot of control over the, the, the amount of labor, specifically nurses, and the same place for doctors uh, that, that, that can get spots in clinicals. So, okay, so what's the family to do? They got into the state school. Uh, they, they, it's hard to get through a nursing program. They get to their junior year, they find out there's no clinical spot. You can't be a BSN if you don't do your clinical. Uh, what do you do? 
Well, what most people do is they graduate with a biology degree and then they go back to a nursing program and spend another $25,000 to get their clinical hours so they can sit for the nursing exam and become a nurse. That's in our own state school system. So what's the alternative? What's, what's a way to guarantee that you have a seat when you're a junior? And the answer is he went to University of San Francisco. Uh, it's, a, it's a private college, uh, very good college, very expensive. And he got in and he was guaranteed that if he could perform like to the curriculum, and, and he did. But, but like, think about the, the families that didn't have a 529 plan like we did when they were born and didn't save the money uh, and, and didn't have you know, you know, good, good experiences. Which is probably the majority, I would guess. It is a majority, especially in California. If, if you're earning $100,000 as a family with two kids. Yeah, good luck on saving. The, yeah, yeah the, the, math, the math doesn't work. <laughs> you want to so, eat or you want to save? What do you, yeah. what, what's your choice here? So, so how many nurses that applied to any state school knew about what I just said? So, so the issue is, one, all the data is out there. It's very, very complicated to find it. And once you find it, it's very hard to personalize it into your unique circumstance. So, so what might have been the right answer is for him not to go to college, right? For him to go to community college, knock out his cores, and then wait for that seat at, at SDSU, right? That, that, would have, that would have cost, uh, what, $2,000 a year for two years uh, instead of 72000 And now he's waiting for the seat that he can go pay $32,000 a year for, and, and you graduate in four, maybe five years. So, so when are students being told this? When are families being told this? And the answer is almost always too late or not at all. And, uh, and, and so when you look at the cost of education, it's more than just the tuition. It's the length of time it takes to get through school. Here's another, for instance, UC Berkeley. Uh, went on a uh, campus tour there with the kids when they were looking at UC Berkeley. And uh, on the campus tour, they say, uh, we have something called impacted majors. So before you even get accepted into Berkeley, they're telling you if you choose to be a psychology major or an economics major, two very popular majors, you cannot graduate in four years. Due to lack of uh, classrooms? The, the, upper, the upper class, oh, there's only a certain number of professors that teach a certain number of days and are only available to a certain number of students, and they know four years in advance that you cannot graduate because you cannot get access to those classes or the cores that require you to you know, be qualified to get in those classes. So, so again, go back to the cost. Is that a... Is that, a, is that a problem with a student loan? I'm like, no, it's actually a problem with the school load balancing accurately. Right, not delivering it's, the services. Yeah, not delivering the services. And then all the costs or all the hard decisions fall back on the family. So, so I, I know I'm peeling apart some of the, the, the onion of, of what the problems are, but this has been going on. This isn't a new issue. These, these issues around pathways in and pathways through and pathways into a job have been going on for years. We just now have the data, which is amazing. That's what Ascent has been doing. We've been mining the data so that we can expose it before the person, before the family makes the decision on their economic and academic journey. And then, and then while they're in, we know what's around the corner. Like we know what struggles freshmen to sophomore have, what sophomore to junior have. We know what struggles seniors looking for internships or full-time jobs have. Like we, we, it's, it's not that we're the brightest guys in the room. It's just we know how to look at the data, and then we know how to present that data to our students and families and say, hey, you're going to have to make a left or right decision, whether you know it or not, and here's the data. Like you go, you go left, and you might cost you another year, but you might get a better outcome. You go right, you might graduate with a biology degree and earn $32,000 a year, and that's not going to pay back your loans. Right, right. Well, that's that's amazing. I mean, like, I, I'm glad you're peeling back the onion because I think that starts to make it more real for people who are thinking about this, right? Yeah. And I know uh, 
two of my kids went to community college and it was the same thing in community college. You couldn't get the classes you wanted. Yeah. It wasn't all that expensive right. and they could live at home and all that kinds of good stuff, which became frustrating for me as a parent going, what are you doing? Are you ever going to graduate from this thing? Well, I can't get this. I can't get that. And yeah. So at all levels, apparently that's the problem. Yeah. So speak about this data piece. I mean, what, uh, where's this all coming from? Yeah, we uh, the the first business that that we started after the the Great Recession in two thousand eight was a company called Goal Solutions. It's uh, it's a local company that that manages assets, you know, primarily student loans and solar home improvement loans. Uh, but we just started managing uh, student loans uh, going back to two thousand eight. And while we were while we were managing these portfolios, we just sat with the data. And more of a thought experiment come around 2015. We had access to two million student files, and uh, and we we could pull credit on them going back to 2003 all the way through uh, 2016 at the time. We're like, wow, that's 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 how did student loans perform through the Great Recession? And so uh, so we're like, well, let's just. Let's just see what someone had hired us to research that answer specifically for a nonprofit in Indiana. So they're like, hey, you guys got a bunch of data. Why don't you build us a loan program and we'll use it in Indiana? We're like, okay, sure, we'll, 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 we'll use your money to do our research. That works out well. And we built them a great program and it's still running to this day. But we sat after we built it for them, we're like, hey, that works for Indiana. Like, what, what else have we got here? And there was one piece of data that was missing from understanding the arc of a student through a recession. And the piece was what happened to them academically. So it took us a year to negotiate with a nonprofit that had the data that we could marry to the credit performance on uh, on about fifteen billion dollars of student loans. So, so we, we were the only company in the country because it, it took like a year to negotiate the rights to do all this that that has you know the the year end credit score of two million students uh, and how they did on their student loan through the Great Recession, and we married it to did they graduate or did they not. And if they graduated, did they graduate before, during, or after the recession? And then, then how'd they do? So, uh, so we married the credit performance with the academic performance and could now study by school, by major, like, how's everyone doing? And uh, we're like, wow, that's some powerful stuff. One of, one of, the, one of the studies, uh, one of the most powerful things we noticed was many students, uh, they don't have any experience as an 18-year-old or a 20-year-old with any credit. So it's, it's they either have no credit or they have something called a thin file. A thin file is you might have a $500 card, but you haven't had it for two years. So you, the market doesn't really, FICO, Fair Isaac doesn't really know if you're a good credit. You're not in debt enough to be recognized. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and some people, the only loan they have is the one from the federal government. So it shows up on the credit report, but it's not getting repaid for whatever, two, four, five, six years. Uh, so, so we looked at those students and said, well, what did they grow up to be? And uh, and a lot of complexity in the answer, but the short of it is, if they graduate, they look like a 720 FICO. So we're like, oh, so it's not about what happened in the past, it's about predicting what's going to happen in the future, and the first signal we get is what school did they pick, and what major did they pick? So you had that information. You yeah. had that data. Yeah. So now, so what, we, what was the flip side? So for folks that uh, didn't quite make it through school. Yeah. So it, it's sad. Uh, it's not. It's not surprising. It's sad. So so these are on portfolios of private student loans, not federal loans. I, I will. I will just correct your early end, your early comment uh, for the, all of you listening. Uh, the, the 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 default rates on federal student loans are higher than those assets that you those loans that you mentioned. Uh, in the private loans, the ones that we're doing, we specifically 
basically lend to people who we think can pay us back, and those are less than, uh, quite often less than the uh, the auto loans or or the credit cards. So or Perfect. the same. Well, that's why we're here, right? I know. I know. <laughs> there's a new way. There's a solution to yeah. this problem we got. I love it. Yeah. So uh, um, so so uh, so what we what we what we've been studying is you know like we need to do a future debt to income, a, a, a future ability to repay a loan, not looking at the past. So we needed markers with which to build the underwriting scorecard and the whole program. And uh, and that's what we've been building and refining for the last six years. And we've got over $600 million of student loans that we've done uh, to adult learners, to DACA students, to international students, to students, you know, first-time learners with no co-signer. Uh, yes, we give, you know, very competitive loans. If you if you're, you have a credit-worthy co-signer with a job, we can give you, a, you know, a solid 3 4 5% interest rate loan. Um, but we've really been carving our niche on uh, on enabling investments uh, more than loans. And when you look at investing in an education and a the, different mindset here, it's right? a different mindset, and uh, and it's not cliche and it's not fabricated. It it, it's, it it is an investment, as your opening comment said. And and I mean, it, it, you're taking capital and investing it in intellectual property called your brain and your knowledge, right? And that's a very intangible asset, but we value intangible assets all the time. And at this formative years, when we focus on the 18 to 28-year-old demographic, because that's where the most learning is occurring, the most uh, growth in income is potential, and uh, where the most credit is needed and not provided. So we're like, huh, this is an interesting segment. Uh, I, I, I often... there's someone will be listening to this to be like, oh, I know someone who lends money as a credit card or a personal loan to someone who's a first-time learner or a DACA student. Or I'm like, well, what's the equation with which they lend by? And the answer is always the same. It's like, oh, well, they look at the debt to income and the person's ability to pay. I'm like, what's the denominator? And they're like, income. I'm like, yeah. We don't have, we don't an have any income. <laughs> we don't have an eye. <laughs> These are students. So, yeah, so so we need to look at other markers, right? We need to look at you know FICO measures your your ability to repay and then your propensity, right? So do you have enough means? And that's an and then do you have the desire? Mm. So we've basically said, hey, there is no FICO score for someone who literally has no FICO score. So how do we measure those two elements, which are good indicators of a future performance and so, so we use the school and the school quality. Are, is the school graduating students at rates higher than other schools? And that's one of our one of the elements in our algorithm. When they when so, they, so that means when if you're giving someone a loan, you're going to a specific school. I mean, right. it might be I don't know hundreds thousands. I don't know how many schools yeah. you have in that pie, but yep. these are qualified in your mind from the financial investment model. Exactly I might add the investment model, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and here's how precise we are. There's six thousand schools that take Pell grants and loans from the federal government. We've combed through all six thousand schools, and uh, one of our loan programs is only eligible at twenty five hundred, and and another one is only eligible at seventeen hundred. So so we've been moving the the. So number. you'll make a loan. For that school, but you're not going to you're not going to push all the chips in on that one. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's because we uh, you know we we don't want the students to overborrow, and and we do have more data than they do, and we're not. We're, it'd be silly to think we're perfect every time, but we're surely directional. And and if if someone is is borrowing tens of thousands of dollars and they want to go do social work, they totally should go follow their heart and do social work. But they're going to earn twenty eight thousand dollars a year, and you shouldn't graduate with thirty seven thousand dollars of debt. And and there's other pathways. Go back to the comment: like community colleges, especially in California, 
are awesome at knocking out your core classes, especially if you don't know what you want your major to be, right? And, uh, and some people do, as I like to say, need 13th and 14th grade, right? Like K through 12 system, I won't get started on that, right, but there's some, there's some weaknesses <laughs> in that system that, that, that the, the higher education system is trying to fix someone who is not fully formed young adult with the academic acumen uh, and, and work, you know, work ethic to get through. Um, so they just need some more time. That's okay. You know, not everyone's going to mature to be an 18-year-old in 18 years. So if I showed up in your office and I, let's say I got a 16 year old I'm a year or two out what, what do you tell me Ken what, what's, uh, what, what's the pathway yeah, so there's this big movement in higher education uh, to, to provide access. So the Department of Education uh, realized, you know, post-war in, in this 1965, when the Higher Education Act was authorized, they had, a, they had a lot of people coming back from wars, and they're like, wow, we, need, we got the GI Bill, but we really have a lot of people who are, you know, moving into, like, need to move into higher-skilled jobs. We need to open up access. So the, the mantra from the Department of Education has been, like, we have to provide access, especially to people who aren't coming from educated households. So the most elite institutions in the country have been trying to increase the diversity of their incoming classes. And, and they've all been struggling with something that I will tell you why they're struggling with. They've been struggling with diversity because uh, people, uh, families make decisions going from eighth grade to freshman that become permanent problems. So here's an example. Uh, if you want to get into the top 100 schools, so yes, the Ivies and the Little Ivies and the MIT and Stanford, but all, the, the top 100 schools, are all of them are great. Uh, if you decide to retake Algebra two as a freshman, you're not taking Calculus AB, let alone Calc BC. You, if, you don't take, if you don't take calculus in your senior year, you're not qualified to even apply to the top 100 schools in the country. Now, you can apply, and they'll say, did you take calculus? And you'll go, no. And they'll say, did you get a, a B or better in chemistry? You'll be like, well, no, I just, you know, I got a D and I got through. You're like, well, like whether you want to be STEM or whether you want to do, uh, you, like, so, so families are quite often unknowingly when a freshman, you said 16, I'm like, hey, Sooner uh, than that. all new parents, I say, hey, uh, if, 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 you're, if you're a dad, uh, do not delegate uh, the academic curriculum of your kids. Part of the, 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 our pursuit of data and transparency is to have a more informed conversation at the dinner table. So we, I, we always picture, you know, what does the, the parent uh, sitting with their, let's pick a daughter because uh, like, like daughters are very, uh, you know, they, 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 they definitely can get their father's attention and their mom's attention. And uh, like when, the, when she's like, I will be miserable if I don't go to this private college in the East. And, uh, and, and the, the parents might not have saved, right? And it could be a son as well. They can go to the East. But the, there's a lot of really good liberal arts schools that cost $65,000 in the East, and they'll, they'll, take, they'll, they'll take a lot of kids from the West, and, uh, and they don't provide a lot of aid, if any. So, uh, so what's the conversation look like? Uh, like, what, what data does that family show up with? Um, the first thing they don't want to say is, we didn't save, right? So they don't want to say that. Uh, like that's, not, that's a bad answer. That doesn't sound like a good parent. But they don't want to say, uh, you know, I know you think that this school is your dream school and it's your new home for four years. Uh, I want to crush that because uh, it's too expensive. Like, so, so we have the money, but we think it's a bad idea, right? So that's, that's the second bad. So, uh, so, so what's... What's the third answer? Well, we're trying to enable the, the third answer, which is um, how much money are we going to invest in four years? 
can you get out in four years? Because the school averages a five year sometimes, because that's what happens. See my impacted majors, and uh, and then and then what are you going to do with that? So at Ascent, we created something called the Bright Futures Engine, and we're trying to really, I'd say, simplify this type of equation. So it's hard to calculate a return on investment in an education when you don't know some critical things like time and starting salary for the next 10 years, right? So, so we do it. We've done it, and we're very precise at it. But ha- back to that dinner table, that father Family is not. Family sitting around don't, yeah. don't have that, that data. So, so what we've said is we're like, hey, uh, you probably shouldn't spend more per year on your tuition room and board than what your starting salary would be when you graduate. So you want to be a STEM major. Rule of thumb. Yeah, you okay. want to be a STEM major. Starting salary on the coasts, sixty-five dollars to $75,000. So there's your, there's your budget, a nice. rule of thumb. Okay. Uh, you you want to do social work. We need people who help people. Uh, they're, they're very you know, low-paying, you know, high, high emotional attention. Uh, starting salary is $28,000. So if you're paying more per year than $28,000, you're, you're putting yourself, you're setting yourself up for a, a very difficult the cash 10-year management. program. Yeah. Right. So, so it's not complicated. It does include ROI or IRR. Like we can do all that, but it, we're, we're trying to simplify a complex data set in what is often a very emotional conversation, uh, you know, on both parties, right? The son or daughter and the parents are both, uh, you know, kind of, kind of high emotion. Uh, and, and then, you know, and people, even with that data, we see people make the wrong decision all the time. Sure, sure, it's not it's not easy, right? Yeah. So, so a little shifting of gears here. I mean, this 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 is like really interesting, and I'm probably going for a few hours about this. How do we help parents uh, go down the right path? But from a more of a personal level, I mean, how, how does this fit into conscious capitalism? How does this you as a leader? I mean, how does this kind of come together for you? Um, obviously, you're involved with conscious capitalism, so you're a big believer in that. So you obviously you're, you're practicing those principles in your business. So maybe connect a few dots for us there. Yeah, I, I've, I've been asked this question since I, I was working with the, the early founders of the, the movement here in San Diego. And, uh, and, and while we were trying to get, our, uh, get, our, get more attention, get more businesses to come, we, we'd run into certain CEOs or, or leaders in the community and they'd say, like, hey, I, I want to I do this. And, uh, and I'm like, that's probably not going to work out for us, right? Because if you're not already practicing conscious capitalism or conscious leadership, then, uh, then like, you're, they're going to see it, right? And uh, now, now, well-meaning people who are trying to turn themselves around, I got a ton of patience for them, but uh, I got drawn to the, to, to the tenets of conscious capitalism because we were already running, I was already leading businesses in a way that was consistent with a lot of the, 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 the pillars of uh, the way conscious capitalism has been designed. So I'm like, wow, uh, I, I found a rubric. I'm already one of these. <laughs> yeah, I'm already one of these. Now, <laughs> this now is this, easy. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I, I, I got a lot, I've got a lot of jokes. One of them is like, uh, Americans just love names for things, right? And, uh, and I'm no different. I'm like, oh, it's, it's what I've been doing has a name. And, uh, and after you have a name for it, you want a framework. Uh, and then if you're a geeky finance guy, you love an equation and and conscious capitalism relative to where you show up uh, provides all of that uh, you know kind of at depth and at at, uh, at at a high level so uh, so so there were certain things that I had realized through my career when I worked in New York City for ten years at you know Arthur Anderson and NBC and then working in small businesses and and 
one of them was uh, when you're working for a really big company, you can extract very uneconomical returns from smaller businesses. And I was on the side of a big company that, you know, that's what was expected of the job. And uh, and I remember having a conversation with my manager and, and I said, Hey, uh, this is a good deal. And he's like, I think they can give us more equity in their business. I'm like, well, they can, but that's, that's not good for them. And he's like, we'll and, go, and <laughs> that, that sounds like a them problem. Uh, that's going to quickly become a you problem if you don't go back and recut the deal. So I did as instructed. And then I, and then I, 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 I laughed and, uh, and I said, wow, um, you know, that it's fun to have the, it's fun to be the 800 pound gorilla and dictate terms, but I don't, I don't like it and I get it. I, I get the gameplay. I, I get why you extract maximum value from every interact, interaction you have with a counterparty, why you squeeze your suppliers, uh, why you work your employees on the weekends because you have to make your public... Not, like, I get all that. I just didn't like it. So uh, so what I sought out to do was, uh, I'm like, well, where, what, what do I like? What frameworks do I like? And, uh, and I like working with small businesses. I, uh, I, I like, uh, and that's what I've been doing in San Diego since the late 90s, since I got here, whether it's technology or finance. And, uh, and, and they've all been set up and evolved in, in, in similar, similar words and rubrics of the conscious capitalism structures. And one of them is culture. Uh, the, the, you know, the, I think the, I forget who said it, but, um, you know, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? right? Something like that. And, uh, and it's true. It's, it's, it's a popular cliche, but it's also very accurate. And, uh, and the best whiteboard to the best PowerPoint to the best business plan to the best financing, if you don't have a team that's mission aligned to execute that, it just doesn't happen as either as successful or at all. So, so everything we do is about setting up the mission, vision, values, and being brutally honest with you know what 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 are we set up to do? Why are we doing it? And who are we doing it for? And then as we build our business, who do we want to do it with? And uh, and and we've all worked with people who were high performers and jerks. And I'm like. I don't want to work with high performers and jerks, and I don't want to tell ourselves lies about what if they, if we lose this person, sales will go down. Like I've been there, I've done that. I, I wasn't happy. I was happy when they left. So I'm like, okay, uh, culture matters. Um, you know, if you have a values and you you hire and fire by them. Uh, you end up having a self-policing community of employees that uh, that that understand who fits and who doesn't, and it's not just Ken has to interview everybody. So how do you how do you bring that to the staff? How, how do you make that happen in the organization? Yeah, the, um, uh, I'm a big believer in uh, aligned interests and uh, and and uh, shared accountability. So uh, so one, you need to get everyone uh, everyone aligned, and there's no better way to get everyone aligned other than setting up your your corporate goals, your individual goals, and your performance management in a way that like like if you take any one piece and optimize any one piece of performance management or goal setting or mission vision values, like you like you have to optimize them all in a consistent manner. So what's that mean in practice? Uh, you know, I, I, we're done doing annual goals. For a small startup business, uh, we do trimester goals for all the staff. We have a corporate goal, but we're sitting here going, we, we, we all debate how to set a year goal, and then we get to the end of the year, or maybe we reset a mid-year, or maybe you didn't write it down. I'm like, why are we torturing ourselves? Let's just, like, it's easier to set four-month goals, and uh, and it's easier to review them. And, uh, and like playing football. Let's win the quarter. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the end of the game will work out if we win four quarters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so uh, on accountability, we're like, hey, we're not going to over like we 
we're management's in charge for the corporate goals, and we're going to make sure everything rolls up. But uh, you know, for for the the manager and staff, like just get the first four months, review it, talk about it, set the next four, and it's and fresh. Run. It's fresh, right? Yeah. We're, we're all remember what happens. Now we're talking about something happened a year yeah. ago, right? Yeah, exactly. And then uh, from a values perspective, uh, we do a lot of things around values. So any company worth its weight, you know, you go to their website, they're like, here are our values: integrity, trust, commitment, hard work. Like 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 they're all words. Um, and we have those words too, some of the ones I just mentioned. And uh, but we did a couple things different. One, we we had the employees write the sentences about what they meant. So what is integrity? What is innovation? We're doing financial services. What's innovation? Is it is it like a cheaper loan? No, that's not innovation. That's financial structuring. But um, so so what is innovation? Let's define it so we're all at least on the same page of what the definitions are. And then let's reinforce it. So here's the way we reinforce our values. Uh, every month we celebrate anniversaries and. There's there's 200 people across all of the goal and ascent businesses. So there's you know every month there's about you know, whatever 10 people or whatever and and the manager gets up and says, hey, in the last year, here's one of the values uh, that was displayed by the person who we're celebrating today. And uh, and so that manager has to know the value, has to apply it to a work setting, and then then not looking for it. <laughs> yeah, has to be looking for it and reinforcing it. Right? right? It's not Ken saying, "Here's the values." Uh, go to the website and putting it in the PowerPoint at the all company meeting. It's not. It's it's the it's the managers celebrating the success, the anniversary success. Same thing with promotions. We don't do annual promotions. If you if you deserve a promotion, we're going to give you a promotion when you when you earned it, not when the CFO said, "Let's wait till February." Right? So uh, rolling promotion, same thing. The manager gets up, celebrates what they did, why they got promoted, uh, and then and then and then identifies a value. And then annually, you get scored on your values. And uh, and can someone fail integrity? No, you can't fail integrity. But it drives a conversation about like, have you been honest with me and yourself and everyone you've interacted with? Like, have you? Um, because I found out from a manager that you said you were definitely going to get it done, you wouldn't fail by, and you knew you weren't going to get it done by the end of the month. That, that we got to talk about that, right? And uh, and it's meant to drive a conversation. So so once you get values woven into your performance management, into your uh, recognition, well, actually now everybody knows what you stand for, right? Uh, and and now now you're building a culture. Now now do those values map to your mission and your vision? Well. Efficient markets, like the employees will see you fake, right? Like there's no way we're ever going to do that. But um, like, okay, well, so so when you line up mission, vision, and values, and you and you put it into your performance management system, well, well, now you're you're not only walking the walk that you want everybody to do it. They're they're all talking the talk. So so that's the way we've managed, you know, really in, in you know in getting our culture deep into all fabrics and it's not just the management team standing up there barking out five words and saying like we're going to score you in a year good luck with that right right well, one of the things you commented on um you said you were you were talking about how you look you work for the big guys the 800 pound gorilla and wasn't a big fan of trying to squeeze everything out of the little guy and decided to go work for the little guy and come to san diego and that's what you're doing but i'm, I'm struck by the thought that um, you know, in the stakeholder model, obviously one of the key stakeholders is the student mm-hmm. and a student of one, a business of one, an investment yeah. of one. Mm-hmm. And not even that, I mean, as you described, you know, we're looking to work with folks that uh, maybe first time college in the family, uh, maybe uh, from uh, an immigrant, things like that. So that that's very exciting. Is there a grander, higher purpose even other than, man, the project itself is a really cool product, but do you guys actually have a higher purpose than that? 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, when we started the ascent business, it, it was done. Uh, it was done for one, really, one specific purpose. Uh, can we can we enable academic mobility and economic success in ways that banks won't? And uh, and there's there's a lot of you know a lot of ways to look at strategy. The way we looked at it, in, at least in the in the ed- education finance space, is uh, it's the one area that hasn't been disrupted by technology. So Sally May is the biggest student loan lender next to the federal government, but um, but in the private loan space, they 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 command fifty five to sixty five percent of the market share, and they're not the best product. Period. So we're like, well, well, what can we do that they won't either won't respond to? or can't for regulatory or other brand or strategy reasons. So so we've been building our business to 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 sell aggressively against the banks and use their they yes they have deposit funding that comes with more than just a financial cost, right? There's a regulatory cost. So so we're like okay, well if we lend money to people they won't lend money to and then we provide support services that eat eat into our profits, then uh, then maybe one of two things or both will happen. Uh, one, they'll graduate faster uh, and they'll pay back their loans, all the loans, not just the ones we gave them, and they'll have better jobs with better salaries. So that's, that's, that's one. But what if two happens, right? What if two for a cent is we actually get more loan volume? Right, so so we're in the market saying we care about student success. Uh, we recently, just last week, uh, we we launched for free uh, to our borrowers a mentorship app. So you get a private a private invitation to download the Ascent Connect app, and and it's a it's a. So you're all in with these kids. Yeah, yeah. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, we, we know we know that they don't have support in their families or their communities or the school. Uh, do you know what happens when you graduate from a ba- and you get your bachelor's degree? You know what happens to your .edu email address the day after graduation? It goes away. Disappears, now, I assume. Now the alumni organization <laughs> will send you a .edu. Hey, they know where you're at. <laughs> they will send you and say, "Hey, congratulations! You, you got your first year free." But um, but the reason I point that out is because that that is the key that got you into the career office. So when they remove your key, they don't care about what happens post-separation from you finished paying your bill and got your diploma, right? So we're sitting there going, okay, so some people got a job before they graduated. The other 80% didn't. What, what resources do they have and who cares? Well, the school has been very clear. They're done. Right, like we got we got new seniors, we got juniors yakking that they need internships. We're busy. Like you got your and you, we're paid. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> we got our payments. Exactly. So we'll move you got, on, you move got on. what you paid for. I talk to schools all the time, especially graduate schools, uh, and I'm like, well, what's the starting salary of your graduates? They go, don't know, don't want to know. I'm like, well, really? Yeah. Well, because if you know, then you have to do something with the data. And so it's in, and, and, and I'm, and I'm definitely making a, a, a broad statement, but it applies to a lot of schools and, uh, and, it, and it makes, it makes economic sense, right? If you're, if you're charging $65,000 a year for tuition room and board and you're knowingly graduating someone into a job that they're going to earn 32,000 and it's almost mathematically impossible to ever pay back the loan, what would you do if you knew that? Right. <laughs> what would you do? Yeah, move along. <laughs> so, so the schools don't want to be, and and there's there's movement now. Um, they used to look at something at the federal program called a cohort default rate. So, you take a loan from the government, uh, you 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 don't pay it back. Uh, you know, you you go into default, and it's measured six years after separation. It's a hokey calculation, but the schools figured out how to 
kind of manipulate and game that fact. So uh, there's a, a nonprofit that came out and has been really pushing. Why don't we look at the repayment rate? So, uh, so we don't like let's just see if anyone's paying back their student loans to the federal government because that should be a better indicator whether or not someone took income-based repayment and it's like the, the schools figured out a way to game the cohort default rate. So, so there's there's a so when you look at do they get a job and are they paying back the loans they took from the federal government? And and we've been using that data now to expose it to families to say, hey, uh, like twice. I'm sure your kid's different. <laughs> and, uh, and and I don't mean to pick on sociology majors, but there's, there's the, like, we have a lot of them. <laughs> well, there was recently an article on US, uh, about USC's master's in sociology. And, uh, and when you go to graduate school, which is where you hear the real, the real bad stories, the, the schools got together in 2006 and they didn't like that the private sector was limiting access to capital. So the private sector would, would, would uh, the, the federal government to go to a graduate program in 2006 would let you borrow $22,000 at like six, 7%. So good loan, um, you had $22,000 as a graduate student per year, and then the private sector would come into the law schools, to the MBA schools, to any other graduate program, and they would do what banks and lenders do. They'd go, should we lend this graduate student more money? And, uh, and if the, the answer was they're not going to get a job that pays it back, it's an easy answer, no. Well, you know, some of the law schools, just to, to name names, were like, hey, uh, like this isn't working for us because we keep increasing tuition and we can't get the federal government. So in the stroke of a pen in 2006, the government created something called a grad plus loan. PLUS is an acronym for Parent Loan for Undergraduate Students, so they architected the, the, the legislation and the, the Department of Education's rules to create a new loan product. That loan product said, when you go to graduate school, after you take your $22,000, you can, as a student, borrow up to and including the cost of attendance. So Just boom. Boom. So, <laughs> so, so the whole market for private student loans at graduate students in 2007 almost disappeared overnight because you could borrow 7%. You could borrow $100,000 a year. Uh, and that's what's happening now. That, that the, the costs weren't that back in 2007, but now certain MBA programs cost $100,000 a year. So you take your 22 and you're 80, <laughs> right? And uh, and so so you're still so, not making any money. Right? So when we think about <laughs> still spending money, <laughs> yeah. So when we think about some of the tenets of conscious capitalism, we're like, wow, that that seems predatory and irresponsible. And the federal government is doing that to students at, at USC. The sociology program, uh, like they just kept increasing the the cost of the program. And, uh, and they, they knew that the average starting salaries of people who had either masters or PhDs in sociology and social planning were going to come out and earn forty five fifty thousand dollars and they're graduating with two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of debt crazy yeah so so we wanted we, what we've been trying to do is use capital as a signal right so you're you're dealing with an affected population you're trying to signal them at a very desperate point in their in their decision making process uh, they're trying to find a way to invest in either you know one two three four years of their future and we're trying to say we'll give you a loan for this and we either won't give you a loan we'll give you less money for that so so we're doing oh, what we can and 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 With the tool that you've got right i mean you got the tool yeah, of the yeah. of some guidance right so uh so so um so that that's i'd say that's one way we've built conscious capitalism into what we do and and we're the only lender in the country right now uh the, the way lending in, in the private sector works is uh the student gets a form from the from the school and says hey here's your aid here's your government loans here's your grants and whatnot and your unmet need it's called is ten thousand dollars so um, so, you know, a bank looks at a need of $10,000, that's what gets written on the, the loan form, 
and and the and the the bank says I will give you the ten or I will give you zero. It's it's a binary decision. Mm. Uh, we look at the ten and we're like, well, how much? We know what you need. What can you afford? So when we started this program, we would say, hey, you can only afford seven. And uh, and so the student would do what they're supposed to do. They 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 go back to the school and say, hey, I got seven. And the schools are like, it's either ten or zero. What's up with the seven? Like we don't know how to process seven. Like what what are those people in San Diego doing? And they're like, I don't know. You talk to them. So they talk to us. We're like. Well, we don't think they can afford to pay back all the debts they have plus the ones they need to get through your school, so we're just sizing the debt to the expected outcome. And they're like, well, you're the only ones doing that. I'm like, yeah, the federal government's not doing it, the uh, the, the states aren't doing it, and the schools aren't doing it. So yeah, yeah, we're that's what we're doing. Uh, we're trying to signal what's a good decision and what's a bad decision. So where, where, where the school end on that then? Do they... They took the seven. <laughs> <laughs> Something's looking good right now. Yeah. And then the other thing we did is uh, um, 50% of all U.S. citizens are financially illiterate. Not proud of the fact. It's just a stat. And, uh, and we're like, okay, uh, let's, let's run this one through the equation. We're lending money to people with no job and no FICO. Maybe they have means with their parents. Maybe they have support. But let's assume that they're not financially literate. Uh, so what do you do? Uh, the federal government gives you tens of thousands of dollars of loans, and when you graduate, they make you take a financial uh, literacy training so you understand all your debts you owe them. And that's four to six years after you borrowed $37,000. That seemed like a bad pattern. Now that we got you, yeah. <laughs> let's see if we can help you out a little bit. And, right? and no one wants to slow down the sale, right? The school doesn't want you to know you're taking debt. The federal government just wants you to get into the seat. So, so it's working for everybody until that student graduates and goes, I thought those were grants. No, those were loans. Really? That's what I signed? Yeah, that's what you signed. So what we do is uh, we build in financial tr- financial wellness training inside of the loan application process. So, uh, so what does that mean in practice? We're standing on a principle. If you do not take a 10-question assessment and pass it, and, uh, and if you fail it, take a 20-minute uh, uh, video webinar on the internet and come back and take that assessment again and, and pass it, uh, we just won't give you a loan. So we've, we've paid for the lead. Uh, we've paid to run credit. We've paid to collect data. We've paid for all this training. And, and we're, again, we're the only lender in the country. It's like, we will forego making that loan if you don't make the investment improving your financial wellness. And, uh, and we, we don't have enough data to know like, what happens if we didn't make we, we Almost everyone goes through it. That's the, that's, they, are, they do want the money. Uh, they do play our reindeer games. Uh, we get the co-signer to do it, too. One time we had a, you know, a, a very large money center bank executive call us and like, kind of like, do you know who I am? I'm like, uh, you're the parent who should be displaying good habits for your child. Uh, that wasn't what he wanted to hear. Um, <laughs> anyway, he's a finance executive. He's like, why do I have to take this silly assessment? We're like, because we're doing it to fear, everybody. Fear it might fail. <laughs> yeah. So, so again, like, like if you're going to lend money to a sensitive population, do you teach them about what, uh, what responsible borrowing and, and repayment is? And the answer is yes. So we, we built that into our uh, system. We're, we, uh, we recently launched... Uh, Another function that said, hey, uh, we wanted them to understand their debts faster than six years or four years after they took the first debt. So uh, so we we, we started talking to them about the money they'd save if they paid some amount of money while they were in school. And we didn't want them to pay too much. So our opening bid was a dollar. We're like, hey... Pay us $1 a month, and we'll lower your interest rate. So for $12 a year, you'll save $500 a year in interest. And, uh, and we didn't mention APR. It's in the disclosures. We didn't mention total cost of loan, because that's obtuse, right? You gave me $10,000, i am going to pay you back $15,000, and I don't have a job, and it might happen in four years. Yes. That's very confusing, right? So we're like, hey, let's simplify what the transaction is here. 
and uh, and that's what we've been working on. And then and then we we work really well with schools who align with our you know a lot of the tenets of what I just described to you. And that means we don't work with everybody. Uh, we we only work with the schools that meet our criteria for quality schools that are producing quality results. Wow. Yeah. Sorry, that's an earful. So I, I yeah. so you know. We started this thing, and you know, kind of some correction on where the problem is. But you know, we have this 1.7 trillion dollar student loan, and my kids have been out of school for some time. I just hear this big, huge thing, and let's the government soon, you know, pay it all off or whatever the thing is. But no big surprise, lots and lots of issues. You're doing some amazing work to try and say, how do we educate? How do we do this smarter? How do we sure get the the end result we're looking for? Ken. What's the one big thought? Um, someone's listening to the podcast or getting out of the car or going into their office and they think, I got to share this with somebody. What's the, what's the one big idea that you want people to take away with around this whole kind of idea of the student loans and the financing issues and all that? What's the big idea? Yeah, the, um, I'd like to take credit for the big idea, but it's been researched and written. That doesn't make it right. It just makes it, I think, a big idea. The um, what, what I'm an advocate for is accountability and, uh, and it can be backwards looking accountability. So I'll explain. Uh, if, if a school is graduating students and they are not paying back their debts because they're not getting a wage that allows them, then the schools should subsidize that repayment, give back some of that money they got years ago. right? So, so you sit there and go, what's the school's incentive to lower price today? The answer is none. Right? You say, well, can you penalize them? Like we've tried. Like they find ways around penalizing. There's no better way to understand if the education that was provided is earning a return that provides a living wage than seeing what happens to the student, you know, two, five, seven years later. So 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 the big idea is, hey, let's just keep exposing this data. And if the schools are graduating students that they can't afford to pay back the taxpayers' money that they borrowed then the school should give back some of its money. And if they're not willing to give back some of the money they got from the taxpayers and the families, no then they should, they should lose access to the federal <laughs> program because it's Pell Grants and it's loans. It's both. So, so, so there is some movement around that as a, as a, uh, a more efficient way to hold you know, bad actors accountable and then to reward the good actors. Right? There's a lot of really good schools that are really expensive and they're producing really good results. And, uh, and, and maybe we should be moving more capital toward those schools and uh, and because they are they are being part of the solution and they're getting caught up with a number of the problem uh, you know the, the problem participants in the market right now well I love that because you know kind of talking about this whole thing this is an investment right you're investing in your child but you're also investing in the school to perform yeah and if the school's not performing then there should be some consequences that we have a heavy focus on the adult learner space and we work with about 125 schools that in one form or another uh, kind of they don't take any money from the federal government so they've, they've set up an educational institution whether it's a coding boot camp or a welding school or a allied health school or a lineman school people who get up on the lines they have to get trained uh, and these schools are saying hey um, let's change the way we talk about about education. Uh, every other consumer product that's got a big ticket is, is, is purchased by consumers on a, how much can I afford on a monthly basis. So you buy a car, you're like, I want to buy a 30000 No, you want to buy a car because you can afford 400 bucks a month. What can I get for 400 bucks a month? You that's, want how, that's how they sell vehicles, yeah, right? <laughs> and and, and you're, you want to go buy a house. Like, I want this neighborhood. Uh, I can afford $1,000 a month for a mortgage or, or rent. Like, the, like, consumers are conditioned when they're looking at big tickets. Education doesn't work that way, right? Like, like don't, don't worry about it for four or five years. And uh, so there's schools that we're working with. And, and if you go to one of the sites, I love what they do. They say, and we provide 
provide a loan at this school. That only becomes a loan if the student gets a job over 40 grand. So instead of telling the student how much the program is, they disclose it. Instead of telling the student uh, how much they're going to owe with the loans, you know, that's what our disclosure is. It's as simple as this: if we educate you and get you a job over forty thousand dollars, you owe us two hundred bucks a month for thirty-six months. Like. That's very simple, right? There's no confusion about what the transaction is. There's no, right. no confusion about who's accountable for what. Student has to go. Student has to look for a job. Student has to participate in the career services and the resume writing and the mock interviews. And then guess what? You do all that, you do get a job. Now, you, do you get a job the day after you graduate? No. The average time is uh, you know, kind of somewhere between one and six months, so you give them time. And, uh, and so, so what would I like to see in the future? I'd like to see more of those schools putting more of their skin in the game and, and getting paid upon a successful outcome as opposed to getting paid for just providing a service that no one can really calculate the value of. Awesome. Awesome. Love it. More accountability everywhere. Yeah. Well, Ken, I want to thank you for taking the time to come in and be on Conscious Curiosity today and share your story, some of your wisdom, some of these great, interesting uh, insights in regards to how this whole program works out there or doesn't work in some cases, and especially for helping out here with Conscious Capitalism in the movement here in San Diego. Well, folks, that's our show for today. And if you enjoyed it, please hit the like button, the follow, subscribe, whatever you got to do. Uh, be part of the movement. Hit, the, hit those buttons. Ken, once again, thank you very much for coming. And until next time, I'm Jeff Blanton saying to all you conscious leaders out there, go do what you do. Go do what you do best, for we're all counting on you. Mm-hmm.